Hello and welcome in. Thanks for joining us for the first edition of the Frary and Smith podcast in 2024. We hope everyone has had a great start to their new year. Caden, I've got to say it's good to see you again. It's been a while and it, it feels like it's been a long time, partner. Definitely has. Good seeing you. Happy New Year to all of our listeners. And we're talking to Noah Frary, the the married man, the first time on the podcast. So congratulations to you and Olivia on that. Looking forward to more of this podcast journey. And we'll say the break was nice, but definitely glad to get back at it with you and talking some about football like we usually do. Yeah, I appreciate the uh, the congratulations there. It took a little bit of break during bowl season. That's probably why you saw less Twitter coverage uh, from us, but we both had things going on and uh, certain things take priority over uh, over Twitter, but uh, definitely excited for the future and uh, excited to hear about some of the opportunities that you've got coming in the new year as well. Well, we have some Sunbelt East Bowl games to talk about on episode 167 of the Prairie and Smith podcast. Uh, we'll be discussing each of the seven bowl games that the Sunbelt East teams participated in throughout the month of December, plus a good friend of mine, ESPN play-by-play broadcaster Anish Shroff, will stop by to talk about James Madison's first-ever bowl appearance. Caden, bowl season, honestly, a bit of a mixed bag for the league. They go 5-7 and seven overall, but three of those wins come from Sunbelt East Division squads. App State kind of held up their end of the bargain, winning that first one, but App State, Coastal, and Georgia State each winning in bowl season. What were your just overall thoughts about the Sunbelt East performance in bowl season? Mixed bag is definitely the right word for it, no. And I think we're going to continue to see mixed bag performances from all conferences and all bowl games, just looking at the turnover we're seeing from rosters through the transfer portal and coaches as well. It's just getting accentuated a little more. But as far as what we saw from the East teams, definitely some impressive, promising stuff heading into next season for some of these squads. When you look at some of the younger players who were able to step up and perform in some of the kind of staple pieces of offense and defense that teams had and were able to lean on in some of their games. And then some new faces as well heading into the next season and just kind of bringing up some more question marks, I think, as far as some of these East teams based on their bowl performances heading into next year. So definitely can't wait to dive into that, talk about some of these East bowl games and maybe what we see in the future heading into the 2024 season with these teams generating some momentum and maybe having to create some momentum even even heading into next year. Okay, and I got to admit, as we were prepping for this episode, it was fun to go back and look at some of the X-Factor players and how they went on to perform. I'm going to give us a pat on the back. We had a couple of nice picks in there, Sam Pinckney and and some others uh, that you threw out there. So uh, good job for both of us. Well, like we promised, ESPN's Anish Shroff is here. Let's not waste any more time. It's time to recap the Lockheed Martin Armed Forces Bowl. Well, we are excited to be joined by ESPN play-by-play Anish Shroff, a friend of mine. Anish, thanks for taking some time to jump on the Ferrari and Smith podcast. Looking forward to it, gentlemen. Happy New Year. Hey, same to you. Uh, Anish, let's just jump right in. And I, I wanted to start with really just a 30,000-foot view of bowl season. You know, some people in the media have called into question the value of bowl games as the structure of college football morphs. Do you believe that bowl games still have value in this current age of college football? And what do you love most about bowl season? Well, listen, if you look at the ratings, people are still watching these games. <laughs> They're highly rated games when you compare it to uh, the sample size of a lot of the regular season games. It's football on TV. People tend to gravitate to that. So uh, I think everything is relative when you start from that view, because that is important. Ratings matter. And as long as these games rate the way they do to me, they're going to stay in this window in this time of year. But um, I do think for certain fans and for some of us who cover these games, you want to see the best players play. And it used to be where it was a reward for the seniors, the outgoing players. This is your last chance to see this quarterback or this running back or this rush end before they go to the NFL draft, before they're done in college. And now you don't really get that. Um, If you're a player that's got pro prospects, you know, everybody in your ear is telling you, sit this one out. And that's what happens. So um, I don't subscribe to the theory that there's too many bowl games, but we do have to figure out what's best in this climate when it comes to opt-outs and non-participation. I would like it to feel like a competitive game more so than uh, what it feels like sometimes, which is a glorified spring game. Definitely. And I think the 12-team playoff at the top is definitely going to help some of that as well, Anish. But you called the Lockheed Martin Armed Forces Bowl game that James Madison participated in and Air Force went on to win that game. And before we jump into some of the specifics of that game itself, could you maybe put into perspective James Madison's season, what they were able to accomplish during their second year transition period from the FCS to the FBS? It's incredible to have a a one-loss regular season to you know, almost run the table. They came within what an overtime period against App State of going undefeated. 
you know, it, it was not a surprise to anybody who's followed the story arc of James Madison that they would be successful at this level. I think it was a surprise to see how successful they were as quickly as they were. But uh, one, I credit the Sun Belt. If you look at what they've done when they've added some of these teams, you look at App State, which was an FCS power. The Sun Belt brought them in. They have been a very good team in the group of five and a very good member of the Sun Belt. Same goes with Coastal Carolina, a formidable FCS team that would get to the playoffs. You bring them in. They were able to transition easily. So James Madison followed the blueprint of the type of schools that the Sun Belt is looking to add. Where you, you, I wouldn't call them penny stocks, but you're saying, all right, you know, the, these aren't quite blue chippers, but it's in that second or third tier. We know there's considerable upside. Let's get in on this because we do think there is uh, considerable reward. And the risk, let's be honest, is minimized given what these programs have done. So, yeah, the 30,000-foot view of James Madison, they put together a terrific season. What they did was you know, almost unprecedented to make the move to get into a bowl game and to play the way they did. The disappointment for me as a college football fan is I don't think people got to see the real James Madison in the one game that people probably watched James Madison more than the others. Yeah, I think, you know, that's a, a huge point. Obviously, there was all the noise all year long about them getting into a bowl game when they were undefeated. Then they lose the game to App State. And and suddenly, you know, everything changed. The, the formula, the calculus changed heading into the bowl game. Anish, another big story right now with bowl season was how bowl games were affected by those opt-outs. And you kind of already mentioned it. Uh, the transfer portal clearly plays a role in that. And a number of the JMU star players in this game were notably in the transfer portal, although they still decided to play. In your opinion, how did the departure of Kurt Signetti and the status of many of the star players in this game affect the Dukes? Well, the transfer portal guys played, but let's be real. If you are in your position, and let's say it's your last month on a job, and your other employer or prospective employers are calling and you got job interviews lined up, your focus probably isn't on the last two or three TPS reports you got to put together at your current job. You're probably more focused on where I'm going to go, what's next for me. And that's human nature, so I don't fault those kids. You lose your head coach, you lose both coordinators, you lose about a half dozen assistant coaches. That's a tough spot. And then you've got you know, a roster full of kids coming off a successful season who other teams are trying to poach who have their own distractions. We're talking about 18 to 22-year-olds again. Uh, was that a factor? It was absolutely a factor. So, you know, when you put all those things together, them not having their best performance against a academy school that you know is going to be disciplined, that's had the extra time, that got healthy, they got their quarterback back, um, and they played a pretty much, you know, a perfect game. They didn't have any turnovers. Uh, they didn't have any penalties. They ran for 300 and 30-something yards. Air Force played vintage Air Force football. When they do that, they're tough to beat against anybody. But, uh, you know, I give Coach Robolewski and those guys a pass. I and mean, that's a tough situation. There's no real blueprint for it. Um, and, again, so many of those guys had their phones blown up from you know, other schools, other coaches. That stuff is real. That stuff is human nature. Definitely great points there. I think when you look at the success jam you had this year when they were going on their winning streak, there obviously were so many less of those distractions. Our full coaching staff was intact, and that clearly wasn't the case in this game. But looking more specifically at the game, we saw Air Force was able to have their way on the ground like they normally do. They had 351 rushing yards. Most JMUs given up during their this time of them being in the FBS. Obviously, the triple option attack plays an impact in that, like you mentioned. But why do you think JMU was struggling so much against Air Force's rushing attack in this one? Yeah, uh, again, you know, part of it is preparation. And when you don't have your regular coaching staff, it's hard to prepare. And any coach will tell you it's harder to prepare for the option because you don't see it. It's hard to simulate it. So it was kind of a perfect storm. And Air Force got its quarterback. Uh, to play. Zach Larrier, when he was you know, predominantly healthy, this was a top 25 team. Remember, they started 8-0. He had a knee injury, played banged up a couple of games, missed the last two games. They lost their last four games. They were healthy for this game. Uh, and then very early on, you just saw that, you know, maybe some of the things you do with a full coaching staff, like make adjustments, um, 
have some you know in-game schematic things you could do. They couldn't stop fullback dive. That was the reality. And if you're playing an option, any coach will tell you the first thing you got to do is take away the dive. Air Force ran the dive, I think, on almost all but one play on the opening drive. And they realized, okay, we can run the dive pretty much at will. And if you can't stop the dive, you got no chance at stopping the option. Yeah, those are some points that Caden has made on this program before, having played at App State against those Georgia Southern teams in the past. He's always said that uh, it is not fun to play against the triple option attack, and you have to be extremely disciplined when you are playing against it. Anish, similarly, we saw James Madison's receiving core had a lot of success in this game against Air Force's defense. Elijah Surratt had the big game. We saw Phoenix Sproles pick up a couple of touchdowns, and we can't forget Jordan McLeod, who had his eighth three-plus touchdown game of the season. What impressed you with this Duke's offense in this matchup? Yeah, they got some dudes. They got some playmakers. Uh, McLeod is a kid I saw early in his career at USF and looked like a kid who just hadn't played a lot of football, which was the case. I mean, he wasn't really a quarterback until his junior year of high school. He didn't start till his senior year. Goes to South Florida, takes his lumps on some not-so-great teams. Then he goes to Arizona. You think you're going to be the guy. You get hurt. You miss another season. To do what he did this year after, you know, playing, what, three games the previous two seasons, he'd only won a handful of games as a starter prior to James Madison. To see what he did, uh, it was impressive. And he's going to you know, be a good player. Uh, I haven't, you know, followed the news with him, whether he's staying or or he's going. But uh, wherever he plays next year, someone's getting a, a really good college quarterback. And then you look at the skill guys, you know, they were down a running back. Um, but, you know, the, the receivers – uh, Surratt, uh, the other kid, Brown, I think was his name. I mean, 2,000-yard receivers, tremendous. And then Phoenix Sproles really came on down the stretch. He had a great game against Coastal to close the season. Uh, and he was, you know, a big-time playmaker in that bowl game. So they have weapons. Um, and, and one thing I've learned from covering some FCS football over the years is the high-level teams at the FCS, they're not recruiting against FCS schools. They're recruiting against I would say, mid-level FBS schools, uh, MAC schools, you know, maybe the bottom half of Conference USA, the Sun Belt, the American, sometimes even going after guys and getting guys who would, you know, have a preferred walk-on opportunity at an Iowa or a Wisconsin or a Nebraska, they'll say, hey, we'll go play and, and get a scholarship at one of these FCS schools and have a chance to win a championship. Definitely a great perspective there with the recruiting. And Jordan McLeod obviously had a great year winning the Conference Player of the Year honors. But Anisha, I want to ask this. With the loss, James Madison finishes the season 11-2. and two. They're now 19-5 and five during their two-year transition. But next season, they'll be a full-time member of the FBS. But they'll look a little bit different. They have a new head coach, Bob Chester. They'll have plenty of new faces on the roster. Probably a lot of the ones that were making an impact in this bowl game might not be there next season. Do you believe that James Madison can remain successful at the FBS level moving forward? Yeah, I do. And and you go back to their athletic director, who I know is retiring in this spring, and you look at what he's done. Uh, he hired Everett Withers, who really got that program turned around. They had a you know big season. He got him to the FCS playoffs. He hired Mike Houston, who won a championship, hired Kurt Signetti, who was able to shepherd the program to the FBS and put together the season they did. And now he's hired Bob Chesney. He's picked three winners. And it hasn't just been in football. If you look at what he's done in other sports, uh, women's lacrosse, they won a national championship. You know, I believe they've got a, a top 25 or a borderline top 25 men's basketball program right now. The guy has hit home runs with coaching hires in multiple sports. He's done it three times in football. So when you have that kind of leadership, and again, to me, that's going to be a big change. You're going to have new leadership at the AD position going into next fall. But he made the Bob Chesney hire. Bob Chesney was a candidate for a number of Power 5 jobs. This is a big-time hire. It's a home-run hire. He had a lot of success at Holy Cross. You know, I think the stigma from the small college guys is starting to go away. You look at what Willie Fritz has done. You look at what Lance Leipold has done. And you see these small college guys. When you're in those spots, you got to think differently. you got to win differently. You got to find the diamonds in the rough. You got to find the unpolished gems and figure out a way to compete against teams that may have more talent, more resources. So, to me, getting a guy like Chesney represents another home run hire for that athletic department, um, and he's had a track record of it. So, I, I don't, I don't see James Madison slipping much. And in fact, I think you know their addition makes this league. Um, 
I think in the next year or so, they got a chance to overtake the American as the prominent and preeminent group of five t- uh, league in America. Yeah, Anisha, I think that's a, an interesting point you're making there about Jeff Bourne. I think that uh, his coming departure in terms of retirement has not been talked about enough, just how much he has helped uh, build this James Madison program over its history. Anisha, I've got one last question for you here. Two years ago, we watched you eat a number of foods with mayo on it for the Duke's Mayo Bowl. This year, you witnessed a mascot get devoured and tried your first Pop-Tart on national television. Wanted to ask you how you've never had a Pop-Tart and what it was like eating it for the first time. It was very sugary. Um, I don't know how I never had a Pop-Tart. We had all sorts of junk cereal as a kid, and for some reason, Pop-Tarts never made it into the household, and then I went off to college, and you know, you never tried one, so you're not craving it. It's so, hey, a Pop-Tart, whatever. Never had one. I'm not really a big try new foods kind of guy, so I never did. And then uh, time passed by, and I'm doing the Pop-Tarts Bowl, and I said, I don't think I've ever had a Pop-Tart before. So I tried it. It was good. It was sugary. Um, you know, wish I would have had some in my 20s now. Uh, a little older now. Probably need to stay away from them, but it tasted good. Well, if your uh, your play-by-play career ends at some point, I definitely think you have uh, the ability to be a spokesperson for one of these companies. But uh, Anish, really appreciate the time today and, and just the candor talking about uh, James Madison's season. Thanks for coming on the Prairie and Smith podcast. You got it, bud. Okay, and that was a lot of fun talking to Anish Shroff. He had a firsthand look at that James Madison team, was able to talk to both coaching staffs for James Madison and Air Force ahead of that game in preparation for the ESPN broadcast. and. Kane, I found it particularly interesting just to hear his thoughts on the state of the James Madison program, how some of the coaching departures and even players in the portal affected this team in the bowl game. But ultimately, for me, what was most interesting, and this is a guy in a niche who has called FCS playoff games for James Madison back in the day, has seen the growth of this program. He feels like this program is going to be just fine in the future. And I have to say, I I trust him when he says that. Yeah, there's definitely two ways to look at it from an outsider perspective. You can look at James Madison's amazing season they had this year and it kind of falling apart a little bit in the bowl game, just given some of the distractions of the transfer portal and the coaches coming in and out of the of the locker room and on the team. But I think you can't really use that necessarily as kind of a basis of what this team will look like next year. You kind of can continue to look back at what James Madison's been able to do throughout their coaching turnover, throughout their transition to the FBS, and lean on that as far as feeling promising about them being able to continue to uphold their standard in the conference next year. There's no doubt that I think this offseason more than any in the last couple of years for James Madison is going to be very important with a new head coach at the helm, having some turnover at the roster and trying to maintain the standard that they've been able to build for so many years. So it's going to be very interesting and curious to see how it plays out for this team. But I think you, me, and a lot of others are optimistic about James Madison, just given their track record and what they've been able to prove so far, not only just in the FBS, but in the FCS before as well. Well, Caden, Anish made an underrated point there, too, and that was Jeff Bourne, the athletic director, is also retiring at the end of this year. He's been at the helm of this athletic department over this period of growth. He's had some excellent hires, uh, you know, including Kurt Signetti, and now he hires Bob Chesney. Given his hiring record across the board in that athletic department, if you're a James Madison fan, you have to feel good about Bob Chesney coming in to lead this program next year. You definitely did do when we talked to Jeff Bourne this offseason. It was just great to hear his perspective on hiring and how he's been able to maintain success at James Madison, not just with the football team, but with all of their athletics. So with him stepping down, it's going to be interesting to see if they can maintain it, not just for football, but for all of their athletics as a whole. And I think when you look at what they're able to do with their hiring and how he hasn't really missed on a coaching hire yet, you can have confidence knowing that Bob Chesney and really all of the the coaches that are at James Madison now are good hires. They're ones that Jeff Bourne believes in, but once maybe it gets in the future and there's some other turnover and some other hiring that's going to happen, I think that's going to test this James Madison athletic program more than ever. But in the short term, with Jeff Bourne's fingerprints kind of still all over the equation as far as their success of their athletic programs, a lot to still be kind of looking forward to and a lot to, to be excited about as far as James Madison in the future, despite their athletic director, who's done a great job kind of stepping to the side. Well, certainly a historic season for James Madison, 11-2 and record. They finished 19-5 and in two transitioning seasons and allow me to be the first to congratulate Dukes Nation on making it to the end of this long journey. You're officially full members of the FBS. We don't have to worry about competing in conference championships ever again. But, Kaden, let's jump in. We've got some other bowl games to talk about. Let's start with the Avocados from Mexico Cure Bowl. App State winning this one 13-9 over Miami of Ohio. 
The Mountaineers securing their first bowl win since that 2020 Myrtle Beach Bowl that you played in. They've now won nine or more games in eight of the last nine seasons. They're 7-1 and one all-time in bowl games. Kane, and this one was sloppy. We saw 13 fumbles in this game, five fumble recoveries. App State had just 13 points, which was their fewest in a win since 2003. We saw Aguilar and Robinson somehow team up for nine catches despite the inclement weather. Anderson Castle runs for a career-high 119 yards. And Kane, this App State defense allowed their fewest points of the season. And I'm also pleased to announce that your bowl tackles record still safe, at least for another season. But Kane, let's be honest, this was the bowl game I was glad to not be at. Uh, the heavy rain certainly put a damper on it, no pun intended. But App State's offense still found ways to operate. Joey Aguilar was still able to complete 56% of his passes. Caden Robinson, as I mentioned, had eight catches for 118 yards. And the running backs led by Castle had a big day on the ground. Caden, App was able to operate offensively despite the conditions and against what is a pretty good Miami of Ohio defense. That had to impress you. I was definitely impressed by it, Noah. You said this is a bowl game you didn't want to go to. It's definitely one I wouldn't want to plan for sure. When you look at just the sopping wet uniforms, the the field paint was all over the uniforms of all the players in this game. It was just a good old-fashioned kind of bowl of dust, really bowl of water kind of game. And I think when you look at what App State was able to do offensively, you have to be impressed. This isn't a game that's going to impress you as far as what they were able to do on the scoreboard. But when you looked at what they were able to do as an offense, constantly moving the chains and keeping things going, it was a huge accomplishment for this team you talk about a quarterback and Joey Aguilar who's from a California environment a warm weather environment comes to Boone plays well in the cold and then kind of caps off the season with playing excellent in the rain this is a team that had 22 first downs in this game compared to the 11 of Miami Ohio Miami of Ohio was afraid to throw the ball in this game they only threw 10 pass attempts in this one App State instead's throwing for 32 pass attempts they're getting the yardage going making easy completions to Caden Robinson, Makai Jackson, despite it being in the rain, making it look easy in the rain. And of course, leaning on that rushing attack, Anderson Castle having a big game as kind of the bigger body back in his final game at App State. Kanye Roberts being featured a lot in this game and will be in the future. So I think when you look at this team offensively, is the scoreboard a 13-point performance going to impress you at all? No, not at all. But I think as an App State fan, when you watch this game and you see, hey, we know that this team in the month of November played some of their best football and we know they're able to play in the elements now. And a lot of those elements of the team are going to be back next season on the offense. You have to feel promising. You have to feel good. And even seeing Joey Aguilar do some things like use his legs to get in the end zone and extend some plays, seeing this team kind of adapt to the elements, be able to perform and a lot of those team members being here next year definitely gives this App State team promise. And I was definitely impressed with what I saw from them against a Miami of Ohio defense, who was one of the 10 best in the nation in scoring. This is a team that only allowed 16 points per game. It's a gritty, tough defense, but they played some gritty, tough offense, I think. And that was what impressed me the most, I think, about this App State performance. Caden, for me, this begs this and very important question. Would you rather play in 20 degree weather in snow or 80 degrees in rain? Give me the snow every time, Noah. My experience in Boone has me well-versed on playing in different elements, and you don't want a wet game. If it's a dry, the snow is not going to be as much of a factor as far as the ball and the turnovers. I guarantee if this was a snowy game, you wouldn't see nearly as many turnovers as you saw. But those rain elements, man, that's something different. You mentioned how many times the ball hit the deck in this matchup. That's just what you're going to have to deal with when you're playing in the rain. It definitely makes the playing field a lot more even for teams, so I would definitely take the snow if I had my choice. Well, this is where we differ, partner, because this former Florida boy would much rather play in 80 degrees in the rain down in Orlando. But, Kane, you kind of alluded to it, looking at big picture and ahead to next season. App was able to re-recruit guys like Caden Robinson, Joey Aguilar, amongst some other nice pieces. For me, that's significant. What do you think that means to this team as a whole and ultimately their chances in this conference as we take a, a brief look ahead to 2024? Yeah, you can't really understate how important this is. I think when you look at today's day and age with a transfer portal, if you have a quarterback, a wide receiver, any skill players that are having big years, we know that they're going to have opportunities to play at the Power 5 level. So if you can keep those guys, it not only helps your team, obviously, bringing a guy like Joey Aguilar back into Caden Robinson as a duo now that's probably going to go down into the into the preseason and into next season as the best quarterback wide receiver duo in the conference when you look at all the turnover. But that just sets an example for your whole team. When you have a quarterback kind of set in place, now when you try to acquire other receivers or other offensive talent, you have that as a selling point to other players who might want to come to App State. And your quarterback being the leader of your team, that permeates to the defense, the offense, the special teams, setting an example of wanting to be back 
in Boone definitely is going to permeate to other players at App State. And I think that's going to be a huge thing, not just for App State, but other teams in the conference as well when they're trying to double down on their star players and make another run at a championship heading into the next year. So I think it can't be understated how important it was to get those two guys definitely locked in for next season. And I think I wouldn't be surprised if we saw that kind of ease who's going to depart from this team in the future and as well as other teams if they're able to keep their quarterbacks intact with some of the best players in the conference. Well, Kane, I think another aspect of this, this will be the first offseason in a while where App State is more than likely keeping both of their coordinators. I have not heard rumors of Frank Ponson and Scott Sloan leaving. I think that could be huge as App State looks to build on this nine-win season and perhaps get back and maybe even win that conference championship game next year. But, Kane, moving on to the easy post Hawaii Bowl, a game that Coastal Carolina won 24-14 to over San Jose State. I know while... I was away. You had an opportunity to speak to Sam Pinckney. He was sitting on the beach in Hawaii. I was sitting on the beach down in Jamaica. But Caden, Coastal Carolina obviously had a lot of fun. You don't have to look very far to find a picture of Tim Beck on the beach that everyone's talking about. I'm not going to go into that any further. But Caden, Coastal earning their second bowl win in program history and first under new head coach Tim Beck. Um, they led 17-0 after holding San Jose scoreless over the until the 12-27 mark. In the fourth quarter, this was actually the first time in 34 games that San Jose State was held scoreless in the first half. Sam Pinckney, I called my shot. I said he was going over 1,000 yards. He did. He had eight catches to finish with 72 on the year, which is a coastal record. Ethan Vasco wins MVP honors with three touchdowns and 250 yards of offense. Getting that coastal defense, picked up a couple of fumble recoveries, and coastal now 2-2 two and two all-time in bowl games. But... Caden, at the start of this year, the storyline for Coastal was the offense and how it was going to look. And the defense, we said multiple times, it just had to get better. And, and Cato, let's be honest, it did. And they deserve major kudos, honestly, for the performance in this game. They end the year as the league's fourth best scoring defense. And they held a very good San Jose offense to their lowest point total of the season. Caden, I'd call that drastic improvement. Definitely, no. I definitely have my doubts about this team, specifically on the defensive side of the ball heading into this season with Craig Niver kind of putting some pieces together from the transfer portal combined with some of the pieces they had last year and trying to improve. It just didn't seem as likely, but they definitely rose to the occasion. I think when you look at this team's winning streak, that was extremely impressive. Those five games where they had different quarterbacks, a lot of that was held afloat and held to a high standard because of their defense and making things easier for their offense. This is a unit that definitely improved. As you mentioned, this was a team that gave up the most passing yards per game last year. Now it's the number four scoring defense. And going into this matchup specifically, I was very high on San Jose State's offense. They have an explosive dual threat quarterback. They have a thousand yard rusher in the backfield, tons of weapons left and right. But this team was able to make timely turnovers. They were able to make the quarterback, Chevin Cordero, very uncomfortable. And I think that's why you saw the result you saw. You mentioned three scoreless quarters for this team. Extremely impressive on the defense side of the ball. Forced two fumbles on that thousand yard running back. Kyrie Robinson held him to one of his worst games of the season with only 67 yards. Wasn't able to reach the end zone. This is a running back that's reached the end zone 18 times this season. So I think just watching this Coastal Carolina defense rise to the occasion, play timely complimentary football. Ben, don't break this San Jose State team got into the end or the red zone a couple of times, but they were still able to get stops, still able to generate turnovers, constant pressure on the quarterback. He made some things work with his legs, but he just made things harder for that quarterback all game long. And just a bunch of hats flying to the football. And you saw just great coverage as well across the board. You see some timely pass breakups. You see guys like uh, uh, Matthew McDoom in the game with a ton of pass breakups in this matchup. So I think moving forward, I think you could look at this Coastal Carolina defense and say some of that defensive culture that we saw in the past and their in their big successful years in 2019 and 2020 has kind of been reestablished this year. And I think that just puts them in a great spot moving forward next year because I think when you look at this roster as a whole, this team as a whole, year after year after year, the offense is never what you're going to be pointing at and questioning. It's going to be the defense. And they definitely rush the occasion, not just in this game, but the entire season. Yeah, Caden, I think those are some great points and what they were able to get out of that defense definitely bodes well for the future. And let's talk about that future. I got to start with this, though. For me, Caden, Tim Beck, he would have been on my coach of the year ballot with how this season has gone. This team goes eight and four in his first season while battling their fair share of adversity. They played multiple quarterbacks at times. Caden, we're seeing a seismic roster shift already this year for Coastal Carolina. Guys like McCall and Pinckney Brown, they're all gone, and that's just to name a few. Given some of the additions, though, that we've already seen, Cato, what are your expectations for year two of the Tim Beck era at Coastal? 
Yeah, no, it's early in the off season, but I think I still have some pretty high expectations for this team, despite the departures they have. And it's what it's because of what Tim Beck was able to do this season. We talked about you having him potentially on your coach of the year ballot. It's very similar to what the Cleveland Browns are doing. Kevin Stefanski, that coach is being considered for coach of the year. And that's because that team was able to be successful with multiple different quarterbacks that play multiple different styles and having to lean on that defense to get wins and get the most out of your quarterbacks and your offense in a different ways. It's a very underrated skill. I think it's one that Tim Beck proved he could do very early in his head coaching tenure. And I think when you look at next season, you have to imagine they'll have less injuries at that position specifically and just more consistency from top to bottom. And with that in mind, you have to have high expectations for this team heading into next year. You look at a guy like Ethan Vasco, who gets his first start against Old Dominion. That's a game where he rushes over 20 times and for nearly 200 yards in that game. Then you look at him against San Jose State and he's throwing for 200 yards and three touchdowns and looking the best he's looked all season. You saw him being able to develop throughout the year. They're bringing in more quarterbacks to compete for that job next year. And just given Tim Beck's offensive prowess and adaptability he was able to show this season, I'm confident that whoever's under center for him, he's going to get the most out of them. They're going to play their best football. It's going to be about getting those other weapons in the transfer portal, other weapons with from within the program to shine. And just given what he was able to show this season you have to be confident in that also having the defense having its culture reestablished, like I mentioned before it's very easy to get caught up in the big names that are leaving but I think when you look at what Tim Beck was able to do if you take the names out of it on offense alone this season there's a lot of attraction as far as wanting to play at Coastal Carolina and knowing you can play your best and I think that's something he'll be able to use as a tool this offseason to drive and generate momentum into a 2024 season that'll probably look more stable for them and they'll be able to attain the same level of success as not if not more so definitely excited about Tim Beck's season he had this year and what's ahead for him in this coastal program in 2024. Well, Kane, I think it's important to mention for everyone that has these doom and gloom scenarios about coastal heading into next year, the, because of the quantity of guys in the transfer portal, a lot of those guys were not Tim Beck guys. They're Jamie Chadwell guys and even guys that are now leaving a McCall, a Pinkney, a Brown, all Jamie Chadwell guys. So I think we're seeing a shift here in culture. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out on the field in 2024. Moving on to, I think for me, one of the biggest surprises, and maybe it honestly shouldn't have been given their bowl record over the last five tries, but Georgia State winning this game 45-22 to over Utah State in the famous Idaho Potato Bowl. We got to see the fantastic picture of Sean Elliott covered in French fries postgame, which was fantastic. But Georgia State winning their fourth bowl game in their last five tries under Sean Elliott dating back to 2017. Actually, their third straight bowl win overall. Caden, this was a seven-point game that Georgia State broke open in the second half. They outscored Utah State 24-8. to In our preview, you called your shot, Freddie Brock. You said he could have a big game. He goes on to rush for a school record 278 yards on the ground in his first start. Darren Granger caps off his career with a five-touchdown performance and added 368 yards of total offense to pick up his second bowl MVP honor of his career. You might remember the 2021 Camellia Bowl. but Caden, you said on our preview of this game that Darren Granger needed to be the ultimate engine for this team if Georgia State wanted to win, and he was, honestly. 368 yards of total offense, five touchdowns, which tied his own Georgia State record. In his two bowl games, Caden, I thought this stat was crazy. 693 total yards, nine total touchdowns for Granger, so he plays really well uh, at the right times. And Caden, honestly, he's been one of my favorite quarterbacks to watch in the Sun Belt over the last several seasons. Darren Granger going to be missed in the Sun Belt next year. He's definitely going to be missed by not just the Sun Belt, maybe not opposing defenses in the Sun Belt, but definitely this Georgia State program. They don't have a long history, but it's not very hard to deny that this is one of their most impactful and important players in their school history. It wouldn't be crazy to have the same conversation you have about Grayson McCall and what he's been able to do for the Coastal Carolina program, for what Darren Granger's been able to do with this Georgia State program. And it's all been about improvement. This is a guy like we've talked to him before about who started his career off at Furman the first two years of, of his college career, comes to Georgia State and just steadily improves year after year after year. He had a career-high 68% completion percentage this year, career-high 2,600-plus yards, career-highs in touchdown passes, rushing yards, rushing touchdowns. He had his bag year. He left it all on the field for this team. And in a game like this, when he didn't have his supporting help around him, he showed what he is truly capable of, even if he isn't surrounded by the big-name weapons, the Marcus Carrolls in the backfield, the Jamari Thrashes we've seen in the past. I think when you look at a player like this, there's no question that he's an elevator for this team. When you look at him being able to do what he was able to do throughout the season and throughout his career was one thing, but being able to do it with 
far less of a supporting cast. And this game in a bowl game in a big moment was huge. And that's definitely going to be something that's missed in Atlanta for sure. You don't find players and quarterbacks like that very often. There's only a couple in the quarterback space, really, when you look at this conference that are truly able to take their teams to new levels, take them to good to great, take them from mediocre to winning games. And I think he's definitely one of them. He's definitely going to be missed. And he definitely puts this offense as a whole in a completely different spot coming into next season, just given the consistency he's been able to show the last three years. Yeah, definitely. Darren Granger will be missed in the Sun Belt. Definitely want to wish him well as he pursues his NFL dreams. I think uh, given the skill set there, he's a guy that deserves a shot at playing in the next level. Caden, Georgia State, they're going to be a completely different team next season. Granger's gone. Carroll's gone. Lewis is as well. You lose John Trey Hunter on defense, amongst others. Coach Elliott was able to replace some key pieces last offseason, but Heading into this offseason, his ability to do it again has to be the biggest storyline for Georgia State. It definitely is. I think when you look across the Sunbelt, who has to really re-up their roster and step their game up and replace the biggest amount of production, Georgia State's definitely going to be up there, and Sean Elliott's definitely going to have his work cut out for him. I think when you look at what they were able to build at Georgia State, how they were able to start the season and kind of the culture they're trying to establish in Atlanta, it hasn't been always easy for them. It's been tough sledding, and I think when you look at the roster pieces that have to be replaced this year, the sledding could be very, very tough depending on what they're able to do. So I think this Georgia State program geographically, I think, is in a good place if you can get some transfer portal kids and talent that have played in the state of Georgia in the past in high school want to come back to the state and can use the program as a place to do that I think that would be huge and replacing the quarterback position is obviously going to be priority number one and I think everything kind of trickles down from there so hopefully whether it's in the transfer portal whether it's whoever they have in-house so we know that they have some players in the transfer portal in their quarterback room as well they're going to have to find an answer for that first have some key defensive pieces to replace too. You mentioned John Trey Hunter. We know that Brian Brown as well has moved on from the program. There's a lot of things to replace as far as what this team has lost, not just from graduation, but from the transfer portal. And I think moving forward, it's not just going to be about who Georgia State can bring in this season. It's going to be about if those players do have good seasons in the future, can this program avoid being the stepping stone program it has been in regards to the transfer portal the last two years. For the past two straight seasons, the best receiver has been gone. Now the best running back has been gone after this season from the transfer portal. Can this Georgia State program and Sean Elliott not only bring in talent to compete next year, but can they keep that talent if that talent does rise to the occasion? and hopefully be able to double down on that and build years together versus having to constantly replace different players that are leaving in the transfer portal. Yeah, Kane, I think suffice to say, Georgia State, we want to see them take the next step. It seems like every year the floor is kind of a bowl game, but we've not seen them reach that ceiling yet. Kane, moving on to a program in a very different spot, in my opinion. Western Kentucky goes on to beat Old Dominion 38-35 to in overtime at the famous Toastery Bowl, but... Old Dominion now just, they're one and two in program history in three bowl games, 0 and two under Ricky Ronnie. But, Caden, this game was probably the wildest game for me in bowl season. We saw dueling 24 plus point unanswered runs from the two teams. ODU could have iced this game late, but you see Ethan Sanchez have a field goal blocked late in the game from 47 yards and then had a second one blocked in overtime. Caden, this was a magical season for Old Dominion, and it kind of just felt like the magic ran out at some point here. Grant Wilson responsible for three touchdowns, one through the air, two on the ground, 249 yards of offense. But it was ODU's defense that forced five turnovers. They had four sacks. But in the end, freshman quarterback Caden Veltkamp for Western Kentucky, who was making his first career start, was just too much. He stole the show, 436 yards of offense, five total touchdowns in the win. Caden, like I said, this was one of the wilder games of bowl season. Old Dominion goes out and scores 28 unanswered points in the first 17 minutes of this game. Western Kentucky then scores 24 unanswered points down the stretch to win in overtime. Caden, when you look at this performance, what were the biggest differences between the first half and the second halves for Old Dominion? Yeah, it really came down to playmaking in this game. I think when you look at the hot start, almost an unrealistically hot start to maintain when you look at what Old Dominion was able to do to start the game, everything was going in the direction and they were capitalizing on every opportunity that was placed with them. Grant Wilson started off the game with a very explosive 70-yard run that got them in position to score. Then the turnover battle just worked in their favor. We're seeing interceptions return for touchdowns. We're seeing fumbles hit the ground and Old Dominion being able to score off of those offensively. I felt like Old Dominion just got a little too big for its britches after things were going so well for them early and you kind of saw the tide turning even before the game 
got into the second half. You see amazing plays by Western Kentucky's wide receiving core, making contested catches, one-handed catches, just amazing highlight plays and kind of getting theirs versus Old Dominion kind of taking advantage. It felt like at the, the turn of the tide, you talked about the two block field goals at the end of the game, but there was an interception late at the half and a 40-plus yard field goal that was attempted right before halftime that was missed. And I felt like from that point forward, the field goal game was just not taken advantage of in the special teams department for Old Dominion. If you have just one of those three field goal attempts go in for you and those little details get taken care of, then maybe you're on the winning side of this one. But unfortunately, those little details weren't taken care of in the kicking game. They weren't taken care of when you look at coverage responsibilities and what some of the defensive backs were giving up in this game to a backup quarterback, a freshman quarterback who was kind of just letting it fly and playing from behind and letting that work in his favor against a secondary that was playing a little timid at times, was losing in 50-50 pass battles. And then ultimately, you just saw the untimeliness of the defense at the end of the game really get the best of this unit. So I think Old Dominion, it was definitely a tale of two halves when you look at this game. Old Dominion kind of got there's not they're not going to say handed to them in the first half, but things were just the ball was just bouncing a little bit more in their favor and they were being rewarded for their effort versus this Western Kentucky team that kind of had to step into the moment, step up to the plate and kind of take this game away from Old Dominion. And they definitely did. You think Old Dominion this season, you think about very close contests. We haven't seen one quite like this this year, but yet again, Old Dominion in a close game providing some entertaining action for us to watch as some football fans, that's for sure. Hey, they definitely provided a lot of entertainment all season long. Caden, obviously this game doesn't go the way that ODU hoped, but this team unequivocally overachieved this season in the third year under Ricky Ronnie. We've talked about their story arc a lot on this show throughout the year, but Cato, what impressed you most about the Monarchs 2023 season? I think what impressed me most, Noah, is just the toughness of this team, the DNA of this team. When you look early in the season, their early loss to Virginia Tech, their big win against Louisiana, and then we saw that very interesting one-point win against Texas A&M Commerce. We really couldn't put a fingerprint on this team in the beginning of the year, but then week after week, we see them continually rise to the occasion and not really flinch no matter who they were playing and who they were facing. I think no team in the conference has been in more close games when you look just look at their weekly schedule, what they were able to do this year, standing toe-to-toe with James Madison, a loss, toe-to-toe with Coastal Carolina for a loss, winning in two games late in the season against Georgia State and Georgia Southern in very close games to rise to the occasion and make a bowl game and end on the 500 side of the regular season. I think when you look at the team's DNA and what Ricky Ronnie's been able to establish as far as instilling this team with confidence in their offensive system and their defensive consistency and running to the football and playing aggressive. I think this team has now figured out their formula of how to win games. They know they were very close and the margin of victory in this conference is extremely close. But I think going into the offseason, this Old Dominion team, whoever stays, is going to be able to remember those close games and how close they were to winning and really making some big time noise in this conference this season. And they can just lean into what their shortcomings were this offseason and come back next season even better. You have Grant Wilson on offense who really grew throughout the season. I love what I saw from him as far as taking command of the offense, using his legs as a weapon. And then Jason Henderson on the other side of the ball is a defensive stalwart and leader for you. I think those two guys alone can really uplift the culture continually into the offseason, into next season. And hopefully we can see this team continue to improve under Ricky Ronnie as he heads into year three. Crazy how much difference a year makes for this program and how we're talking about this program differently than how we were talking about this program a year ago. But Caden, let's move on to another program that we were talking about glowingly last year and now heading into this offseason, not as much. And that's Marshall, who lost the Scooters Coffee Frisco Bowl 35-17 to to UTSA. Marshall has now lost four of their last five bowl games. They jumped out to an early 14-0 lead in this one, but then they saw UTSA score 35 of the next 38 points in this win. Rasheen Ali had a touchdown. It's going to be his final game at Marshall. He's heading to the NFL Draft. We saw Cole Pennington throw for 258 yards, although he completed less than 50% of his passes. Jaden Harrison had a big game receiving with you know, six catches, 131 yards. He's now in the transfer portal. Uh, Eli Neal had a fumble recovery and an INT, while Abraham picked up an INT to move to first all-time at Marshall in career interceptions. But in the end, UTSA's balanced offense, it just seemed like it was too much uh, for this Marshall defense. Caden, this one obviously didn't go Marshall's way. A lot of guys were playing for the last time. Eli Neal had the two turnovers I mentioned. Owen Porter had five tackles. Micah Abraham with an INT. uh, All in their final appearance in a Marshall uniform. Caden, I thought Eli Neal said it best after the game. He said, it means a lot to be able to play with my brothers one more time. And I just wanted you to speak to that. What's it like suiting up with your guys who you went to war with one final time? 
Great question. No, I think when you look at college football career, it's obviously special. You have guys that you've came in with and created bonds with. You have new players and transfer additions and coaches that you all have a bunch of love and respect for. And the senior night is one thing as far as ending your last college game at home. A lot of those senior nights are followed with another away game or this bowl game. But the bowl game is truly a, a great kind of tie-in as far as your last experience. If you are a senior and you're moving on, you have the entire week to have some new experiences, some fresh experiences in a new place with some of your brothers and your and your closest teammates. And then you have one final game where you can kind of leave it all out on the line. And we've talked in length about how Western Kentucky put a put a whooping on me and App State in our last football game. But what a lot of people don't know in that game is I, I broke my thumb in the first half of that game and we were losing by a lot. It hurt. It wasn't fun. But I knew going into the locker room and after getting an x-ray that I was going to finish that game because it was my last game with my teammates. Even if the score was lopsided, I didn't care about that. I didn't care if Bailey Zappi was breaking Joe Burrow's record or my thumb being broken in the game. Didn't matter because I knew that was my last college game and I knew I wanted to leave everything out on the field and just have one last positive experience as far as being able to fly around with your brothers on defense, on offense, being able to work together to try to get points and get in the end zone. It's a, it's a special thing for sure. I think the college football space is a sacred one. It's definitely one where you see a lot more players not being able to make it to that next level. So a lot of your lasting memories are in not just those bowl experiences, but the bowl games themselves. So definitely happy that Eli and those boys at Marshall, maybe not able to get the win like they wanted to, but were able to probably have some lasting memories on and off the field in their bowl experience heading out and as they, as they all pursue the NFL now yeah I definitely think uh I appreciate that perspective that you gave there Kaden when you look at this Marshall team they're heading into the offseason now they begin the year 4-0 they lose seven of their final nine games the offense let's just be frank looked horrible they are bringing in a new offensive coordinator in Seth Dagey and they've already landed a commitment from former Wake Forest starting quarterback Brett Griffiths Kaden they're going to move more towards an aerial attack next season at least that's what I'm hearing at this point after the season they had, it feels like Marshall needed a complete reset on offense, right, Cato? A complete reset, a complete detox, a complete cleanse, whatever you want to call it. They had to clean things up on offense because it was atrocious this year. I mean, heading into the season, I picked Marshall to come out of the East because I was so confident in their offensive formula. I knew their defense would be able to keep teams out of the end zone. And as a result, their offense would be able to rely on that ground and pound attack, be able to move the line of scrimmage win the time of possession every game and ultimately with their physicality and ability to run the ball, be able to win games and have an effective offense. But that was just the opposite this year. The defense obviously had its own problems at moments this year where they were giving up a ton of points and their offense was kind of forced to adapt on the fly and be more of an aerial attack. And they clearly were not equipped for that. They had their first move lined up, but when teams had a counter punch, they had no answer this entire season. Their passing game lacked any kind of creativity. They could not move the chains. They couldn't set up any of their quarterbacks for much success this season at all, despite them having different skill sets and abilities in their own right. I don't think anyone on their roster isn't talented necessarily offensively. I just think their talent was not being utilized to their full potential. You look at the last six games of the season for this team, and four of them, they were held to single digits when it comes to points. Just terrible performance from this offense this season, despite the talent they had in-house. So hopefully in the future, when we look at them in this offseason and heading into next season, they're going to have to switch them sing- some things up. They're going to have to have a counterpunch. They're going to have to have some creativity because that's just where we're seeing the game of football as a whole evolve right now. I think as far as the, the datedness of this offense, it might be it's time to kind of hang it up as far as looking at what the rest of the conference is being able to do creatively, being able to put up points in a lot of different ways and being a little bit more versatile compared to this Marshall team that was a little bit of a one-trick pony this year. And we saw as a result them lose a ton of games and a lot more than we expected this year. Yeah, give Coach Huff a lot of credit for recognizing that. It looks like he's making changes and now we'll see how those changes play out on the gridiron next fall. But Kaden, last bowl game to talk about. This was actually the first bowl game that took place in bowl season. And for the second straight year, the team that played in this game is heading home six and seven after a bowl loss. And that's Georgia Southern, who lost 41 to 21 to Ohio in the Myrtle Beach Bowl. Uh, they dropped their bowl game for the second year in a row. They end the season with five straight losses. There were some high notes in this game. Derwin Burgess, six catches, 117 yards, and a touchdown. He's actually announced that he's coming back next season. Caleb Hood went over 100 catches. He's the first Sunbelt athlete since 2012 to do so. And Georgia Su- and he also set Georgia Southern's single-season receiving record. Bryn broke the Myrtle Beach Bowl record with 350 yards. We'll get to that a little bit more in a moment. But, Kane, we've got to talk about the elephant in the room here. Davis Bryn, he throws three interceptions, number 17, 18, and 19 on the season in this game. It was his fifth game with two interceptions. Georgia Southern turns the ball over five times total. 
When you look at their season as a whole, they were minus four in turnovers this year. They had 20 total interceptions. Caden, we know that this offense is going to be susceptible to turnovers because of the sheer quantity of offensive plays that are run, but this is a problem that's got to be rectified. Last offseason's top priority was fixing the defense. This year, it's got to be fixing the turnovers on offense, right? Definitely, and I, I, they can obviously look to improve more in defense going forward in the future. They definitely still haven't reached their ceiling as far as being one of the conference's top elite defenses that we've seen in the last couple seasons, but they definitely improved this year. They definitely took a step in the right direction, but the turnovers were definitely just a glaring issue for this team. When you look at last season compared to this season, 16 interceptions for Kyle Van Trees, 19 this season for Davis Brin. I'll give some some slack to Davis Brim because he was sacked 31 times this year. And last season, we were talking about how the offensive line did such a great job of protecting Kyle Van Trees, him getting only sacked six times. But then look at the fumbles, too. There was just grease on the football in Statesboro, I think, this season. They had nine fumbles last season. Five of them were lost. This season, they had 20 balls hit the deck, and they lost 11 of them. So I think the turnover issue is definitely something you just cannot afford, especially if your defense isn't your strength and your offense is the one that kind of has that aerial high-flying attack. So I think moving forward, that's definitely going to be something they're going to have to address when you drop back and have that many pass attempts in a season i mean davis brin threw the ball over 550 times this year some interceptions are going to come but some of them are just can't call it anything else than a boneheaded mistake throwing it right into double coverage not seeing an underneath defender not missing some of the little things you want to be opportunistic opportunistic and aggressive in the offense but you don't want to just have flat out plain mistakes that are that anyone from watching a game on at home on their in their armchair can point out and see that that's an issue so I think the turnovers are definitely gonna have to be something that this team fixes moving forward along with their defense that can use some improvement but the good news like we've mentioned before is this team knows how they're gonna win the games and they know what to improve on I think it's not gonna be very hard to hone in on some of those little mistakes because they went on a very bad losing streak to end of the season but if you take just the turnovers out of it if you just get a little bit more out of your defense you could see some of those games flip very quickly so this team knows what they have to fix it's gonna be be a matter of can they do it and how they attack it going into the spring and the rest of the offseason. It will definitely be a point of emphasis, I feel. Kane, real quickly here, Georgia Southern obviously 6-2 and two in late October. The wheels fell off the proverbial train down the stretch, but you're getting Jalen White back. You've got Derwin Burgess announcing that he's coming back. They've still got some nice pieces on defense, and they're making some noise already in the transfer portal slash the recruiting front this offseason. What's the next step in your mind for this program? Yeah, I've said it before and I've said it again. This program, I think, with what they were able to build offensively has made them an attractive destination for transfer poor portal uh, student athletes. And I think they'll continue to do that in the future when you look at a quarterback who wants to come and have some big numbers, a receiver who wants to come and have some big numbers. It's great getting Jalen White back. So I think they're going to have the pieces offensively to do what they have to do to maintain their offensive success. It's going to be about can Brandon Bailey elevate this defense now. We see a lot of times with a new defensive corner that second season is really where your players have a better understanding of the system. Nothing's new to them anymore. They can kind of just revert back to their training and play a lot more clean brand of football. So I'm looking forward to the defense improving next season. And then this offseason, Georgia Southern really just continuing to be an attractive spot for transfer portal skill players, especially who want to play in a good offense. Even high school talent, state of Georgia, like I've mentioned before, has a lot of talent. I think Georgia State, or Georgia Southern rather, isn't going to have any issue acquiring talent. I like what I saw from J.C. French this year, so it might look a little differently as far as what he brings to the table with his legs. But overall, I'm excited about this team next year. They definitely had the wheels fall off using losing their last four games of the season, but I'm still confident in what they're able to do offensively and the little things they have to fix in order to go from good to great, hopefully, next year. Well, that will put the bow on the Sunbelt East Division in 2023, arguably amongst the toughest divisions in college football, seven bowl eligible teams. It was a lot of fun to watch. Well, that'll do it for our Sunbelt East Bowl season recap. Again, we'd like to say a special thank you to ESPN's Anise Shroff for joining us for today's conversation. We hope you enjoyed all of our bowl season coverage uh, this year. Before you go, here's a quick reminder. We're going to be back on Wednesday to recap bowl season for the Sunbelt West Division teams. You're going to want to make plans to join us for that. That'll do it for us here at the Frarian Smith Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, do us a favor. Tell a friend about the show. Help us to continue to grow this show into the premier destination for Sunbelt football fans here in 2024. So for Caden Smith, Richmond Weber, and Brett Jemis, I'm Noah Frary. Thanks for spending time with us today. Well, that's goodbye for now. We'll talk to you again on Wednesday. Wednesday.